This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tara McCarthy, and welcome to The Loop. Things might be feeling a little heavy lately, because we crossed that threshold one year. You've heard all the stories, because a pandemic was declared on March 11th by the World Health Organization. There's been a lot of reflecting back. There's also been a lot of change that's happened during that time, and that continues to change. This week on The Loop, we'll take a look at a safe space created for women of colour, involved in and interested in politics. We'll also reflect on the lives lost in Alberta to COVID-19. And an Edmontonian is giving black artists a spotlight on one of CBC Music's new radio shows. Women are often encouraged to run for politics, but what comes after that is heavy criticism and often little support. Even more barriers exist for those black, indigenous, racialized women that decide to put their names forward. So a new group called Political Divas is really hoping to change that. They're looking to create a safe and supportive space for BIPOC women. Raja McGay is a policy advisor with the city and co-founder of Political Divas. Hey, Raja, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for making some time for The Loop. No worries. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm curious, too, what your experience has been like in the political sphere in Alberta. What's that been like for you, personally? It's been challenging, honestly, trying to find a space where I can feel comfortable, um, where I can feel safe. And, you know, one of my first interactions at City Hall, I was told that I you know, got my job just because I was a minority. And that's something that really stuck with me for a while. And then, you know, when you interact on platforms like Twitter or you are on social media, it's hard to carve out that space and and figure out when to speak on certain issues and, and things like that. So, so far it's been, it's been pretty tricky to try and navigate and to try and um, figure out my own political identity at the same time and and how I want to engage with my community and in my community to do this work. But, you know, recently, especially I've been finding, you know, a network of women that I can lean on. That's been really great. It sounds like that's really the catalyst, too, for creating political divas, really, really diving into that support group. Is that why you co-founded this initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I found that there was just a lack of support that I was feeling in general. I met some just amazing women through social media, actually, and and started to lean on them because we had, you know, similar experiences and could relate to each other in ways that our male counterparts couldn't or, you know, our non-racialized counterparts couldn't. And then creating that network has been really, you know, it's been really affirming because, um, you hear of these women who have similar experiences and, you know, they don't come from the same background or maybe they're not even in politics, but they they know how you're feeling. You had your launch event on March 12th. What was the energy like finally getting some people together to, to talk, to open up, to feel safe? You know, it was actually really great. I feel like we we're building up to that moment and we had about 30 women show up, got to see a lot of familiar faces and it's great to see everyone kind of show up and then find comfort in that network. And we had breakout rooms where we could talk in groups just about, you know, the way we've been feeling, what's been happening in the news. You know, we've seen an increase in hate crimes specifically targeted towards black Muslim women. So we talked about that for a bit and how that's been making us feel. 
when it comes to engaging politically and, and being vocal within our communities. It's so important to have those conversations, and especially in a place that feels safe, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just carving out a soft place to land is really essential so that we can keep women engaged and so that they don't feel, you know, they they want to quit being active and politically active. Yeah, not step away. Like even how you were saying, sometimes I'm deciding what to tweet. Do I want to put that out there? You also don't want people stepping away from opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of intelligent, capable women that maybe aren't voicing their opinions because they're scared. What would what does representation of women in politics, what does that look like and mean to you? So to me, I feel like it's, you know, of course, it's our political candidates, but it's also, you know, the women in other leadership positions and also making sure our policies are representative of women in our communities as well. You know, when we think of municipal politics, we think of safety, we think of taking transit and, you know, who's better situated to talk about the everyday experiences they have than women. You're also chair of Parity Yeg and you co-chair the Searching for Izena podcast that's been released uh, through uh, YWCA Edmonton as well as Parity Yeg. You're exploring the history, the past, present, future of Edmonton City Council. Only 31 women have actually served on the council. There's been one woman uh, in the mayor seat. No BIPOC women have ever sat on Edmonton uh, City Council. What's stood out to you so far in the conversations on the podcast three episodes in now? Yeah, so we just had um, Jan Reimer's episode released. And that one, I feel like that one was probably my favorite one so far because the first couple episodes, we were diving into the very early history of those trailblazers. But Jan Reimer, it was pretty recent. And then you hear about how difficult it was for her, especially in her second term. You hear about the groups that you know, lobbied against her and and said she was damaging the business community. You hear about her experiences, like there's an individual, there's a male that was stalking her and would show up to events and make obscene hand gestures at her. But then you also hear the really great experiences she had as the first, you know, female mayor. She would get invitations to everything. Everyone wanted to meet her. Everyone wanted to talk to her and welcome her as our first female mayor. And it's really sad that we haven't had a female mayor so far. And it's, it's also really sad that we haven't had a BIPOC woman in council chambers as a councillor yet. But I really hope this next election season we can see that change and potentially see gender parity in council chambers again. Yeah, what's your impression of the race so far? Last I, I counted, uh, 21 women have put their names forward as candidates. Some BIPOC women within that 21. What do you think? Yeah, that's just been really great to see, really affirming to see. And I'm just really hoping that people give them the time of day, volunteer for them and donate for them and really do give them as much attention as they would their male counterparts. I noticed that for the launch event for Political Divas, by the way, we should say, uh, can you tell us what the, the acronym Divas stands for, for for the group? So Divas stands for Democratic Intersectional visionary, anti-oppressive, and supportive. Those are such strong, powerful words, each and every one of them. I Mm -hmm. noticed that the the launch was really surrounding this idea of practicing joy and showing up for yourself. Raja, I wondered what that looks like for you. Yeah, so it's something that I still have to learn, you know, 
with self-care and, and learning how to center that within my own life because things are moving really fast, but we're all still kind of stuck at home and stuck in the same place. So practicing joy has really been finding times within my day to practice the things that make me happy, you know, remembering that social media and even politics is not the entire world and it shouldn't hold me back from doing certain things. Practicing joy also looks like, you know, taking care of yourself, talking to your friends, finding that supportive network that's going to have your back and uplift you when times are hard and when you see difficult things in the news that upset you. So it was really great to have that network and find that network and establish that for other women in our community who maybe don't have that yet. Claire, in a lot of ways, it's hard to believe it's been one year since the pandemic was declared. One year and one week, to be more specific. And it's felt like a crazy amount of time. There's so many ways, too, to look back on all the things that have changed and reflect on all the things that have happened over the last year, including all of the lives that we've lost. We found it a little unbelievable because Barbara, in many ways, was a very robust, very healthy individual. We had the respiratory therapist come in and uh, the nurse and they took her off intubation and she was gone in five minutes. That was the family of Barbara Wally, who contracted COVID-19 and died in Edmonton in December of 2020. Alberta's first death from COVID came on March 18th and 365 days later, that death count sits at just under 2,000. Reporter Robson Fletcher is part of a team at CBC that looked into these deaths and what it's meant for families and communities across the province. Hey, Robson, how's it going? Hey, it's good. It's going all right. How are you? I'm I'm okay. I, I mean, how do you even approach this topic, the story about all of those that we've lost this last year? Yeah, it's certainly not uh, an easy one. What I think the real struggle with this story was, was trying to sort of convey both the magnitude of the losses that we've seen over the last year uh, while also maintaining the the individuality of each life lost. And we tried to do that by by looking at the big picture. Um, as you mentioned, we've we've now lost nearly 2,000 people to COVID over the past year. In, in terms of causes of death in, in a typical year, that would rank it third behind cancer and heart disease, but ahead of other leading causes of death like stroke and, and accidents and suicide. But at the same time, we wanted to remember each person. So I do a lot of the, the COVID-19 data uh, every day and I, I look at all the numbers and I, I make a lot of charts and graphs and I try to remind myself that you know, each, each increment in that death toll is a, is a real human being and a, and a complex person who, you know, who had loved ones and hopes and dreams. And to try to remember that, we, we spoke with a few families who, who had lost loved ones and, and really tried to center the dead in, 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 the, in the story. It, it starts off with the perspective of one, one woman, Marlene Dukeman, who realized she was going to die from COVID and sort of what was going through her mind. What was Marlene's family's experience? Well, it was a bit of a unique situation because her daughter, Debbie, was just getting over her own experience with COVID 
which she still struggles with today. I mean, she still has trouble breathing months later, but in a weird way at the time, it was a bit of a blessing because doctors made a bit of an exception for her and they allowed her to spend more time with her mother as, as Marlene was dying in hospital, as, as Debbie had, had just recovered from her own case of COVID. And so she got to spend two and a half days with her mother, her final two and a half days in the hospital, and she got to talk with her. And she was very you know, agitated at first when she found out that she had COVID because she had a lot of living left to do. And when it became very clear that she wasn't going to make it, you know, and she had to kind of surrender to it. It was really tough for her, too. She went through about 15 minutes of anger, you know, that there was other people who had gotten away without getting it. And and that left her very quickly. And she just talked about love. And I will never forget that as long as I live. So the experience for Debbie was being right by her mother's side like that. We also spoke with her brother, David, who happens to live in Thailand, where he's, he's lived for the last several decades. He stays in close touch with the family, and, and he, he was not so fortunate. He had, he had to say goodbye to his mother over FaceTime. Speaking to those families, I can't imagine it's easy conversations. It's so unbelievably hard. You also spoke to a, a family here in Edmonton, uh, Barbara Wally's story. Can, can you tell me about her? Uh, my colleague Paige Parsons spoke with Barbara's sisters who, uh, who were very close with Barbara. So Barbara died um, in her 60s and um, she, she had a developmental disability that, that was a result of a brain injury she suffered during her birth. She was very close to her sisters. She, she lived in a, a small group home in Edmonton, but she, she would regularly you know, go out for dinner with her sisters. She, she had a knack for remembering everyone's birthday. She was very active in the community. She had perfect attendance in her bowling league. And, uh, you know, she was by all accounts full of life. And, and her sisters said they were quite surprised when not only did she get COVID, but she was quite sick. What, what was really tough for them um, was the fact that they weren't allowed to visit her in hospital because they had spent so much time with her and she, she was so used to having them by her side that, that they worried about whether she felt abandoned in her final days. They, they were finally let into the hospital to see her on December 28th, which was the day she died. And they basically spent some time by her bedside and sang some of her favorite songs with her. And then uh, the nurse and the respiratory therapist took Barbara off the intubation and um, she died very quickly. It feels so hard to understand the weight of all of these deaths and, and all of the impact that it's had. I mean, how are we grappling with this as a broader community, as Albertans? Yeah, it's we talked with some some people who have a perspective on that, too. So, um, you know, an ICU physician in Edmonton who who talks with a lot of families um, and, and, and witnesses a lot of this death firsthand, as well as um, uh, you know, like a psychologist and and other and other people who sort of look at grief from sort of the thirty thousand foot view. There's a collective sense of grief that they all talked about in in terms of what we've lost as a society. You know, we've we've lost our normal way of life. Lots of us have lost jobs. Um, we've lost our our social connections that that are are so important to us. And there there's a sense of grief there too. But what we heard time and time again from the families who lost loved ones was a bit of a sense of a disconnect. That's the sense that they hear from others and they brought up social media time and time again, this sense of minimizing the disease or, or, or suggesting that, that it only affects the weak or the infirm. 
or that it's not such a big deal. And a lot of the people we spoke with were quite, quite frustrated by that. They, they found it really hard to, to square with their own experiences of, of losing a loved one in an untimely way. And, you know, some said they've lost friends over it. It's, it's been a source of friction sometimes. And I think there's this sense, too, that, I mean, we've all walked through this pandemic in really different ways, right? And you think about the things that you've experienced as a person versus what other people have experienced as a person. Is it different when we react to these kind of invisible virus events versus other things that we can all feel equally? Like, like what's going on in our heads? Or can we get through this? Are we all going to end up depressed at the end? Yeah, I mean, there, there is a difference. I mean, one one sort of grief expert we spoke with highlighted how different the pandemic is from other sort of tragic events that we might have gone through as a society in the past. So, I mean, if you think back to something like like the September 11th attacks, I mean, the, the imagery of that moment is sort of shared and collective in all our heads. We, we can picture it and we can center our, our understanding around that. But the virus as an invisible thing that, you know, people disagree on, uh, on sort of how, how serious it is, it's, it, it doesn't have that same sort of touchstone uh, imagery that we can center around. So at the same time, though, we, we all have collectively lost something. I mean, our entire, our entire lives have been disrupted for, for a year now to, to some degree or another. We, we've all lost something that we're grieving. So it's, it's different because it's, it's invisible and the way we experience it is so different. But it still no doubt has an effect. I mean, one of the psychologists we spoke with for the story talked about how this this sense of, of grief extends beyond just people who have lost loved ones and it really tests our resilience. Um, he said, fortunately, for the most part, you know, people tend to be pretty resilient. But the, the trick about resilience, he said, is, is you don't know until you're tested. So and it's not, a, you know, a failing on anyone's part if, if they're having a tough time. It's just the, the way the human brain works when it's exposed to this this constant level of, of, of stress and, and, and difficulty over such a long time. It's, uh, it's just part of how we, how we are as human beings. Black musicians are getting a much-deserved and a long-overdue spotlight on CBC Music these days. You may have heard of this new show. It's called The Block. Launched on February 1st, it airs weekday nights from 7 to 9. It's hosted by Edmontonian Angeline Tedaweo. Hey, Angeline. Welcome to The Loop. Thank you. How you doing? I'm okay. How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm good. The last few weeks must have just been like a dream come true, getting this show off the ground and on the air. How's it feel so far? Oh, uh, like jumping into the deep end, making it happen, right? You know, we just, you almost don't honestly have time to think about it too much because it is so much of a heavy lift, right? Like it's, you have to crank out a daily show, write, record, produce, put together, package an entire show every day. So it's almost like you're just so in it that it's hard to sometimes you know, what's the saying? See the forest for the trees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you take that little mini reset on the weekend because then that's, you know, life and, and even thinking about Monday's show, right? Yeah, it never ends. And, you know, I it's not like <laughs> the weekend is my time. You know, I have a small son. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's just been even through the whole uh, process of basically putting the show together was real difficult because it's a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I'm a mom and I had a kid at home who was doing, you know, homeschooling and stuff. So 
Uh, it's been super intense, but once again, it's just kind of like, you do your best to make the adjustment because you know, this is, this is an awesome thing. This is basically what you've been training for your entire career and now it's arrived. So, you know, I got to stop sometimes and pat myself on the back and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, you do. Absolutely. You do. What went into making the show a reality? Cause it, I mean, following your trajectory uh, since your roots in Edmonton and, and starting in radio, this has really been what you want to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I started out kind of not even really wanting to be on the air because I didn't want to really find myself completely surrounded with music that, you know, didn't really resonate with me. But that's kind of like a pitfall of of working on air is that that's never going to be the case that everything that you play or everything that is a, a part of the format or the selection of the music director is something that you're going to dig. But uh, with this show, it was definitely a realization of being able to create a platform for music that would resonate with people that looked like me, really, because, you know, growing up in Edmonton, there wasn't really anything for that. And there wasn't really any places or spaces for me you know, if I could just speak for myself, because, you know, I did grow up on the South side. There was a lot of black people around. Um, I was most of the time the only one. Mm. Um, so definitely uh, a feeling of, you know, finding a place to belong. And so I kind of started out just producing. Um, I wanted to be a producer, like an audio producer. And I'm quite good at it. And I was happy doing it. But, you know, I just kind of had a predisposition to being a very good on-air host as well. So uh, with this particular show is when I started here at uh, the CBC, they had, I don't know, maybe a few years prior, had made the jump from being all classical to including some contemporary music. And um, with the addition of our new director, uh, Steve Jordan, he kind of came with the desire to make a space for uh, specifically hip-hop on the network. Um and he was open to ideas. And at that time, uh, my partner in this, Judith Lynch, pitched an idea for the block. And he liked it. And uh, he and I also had many, many conversations about what a hip hop show might look like or not look like, but sound like. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and after we had some conversations, eventually I got a call asking me if we'd be interested in hosting it. Is this new quote-unquote hip-hop show. Um, yeah, and it's funny what, how you say quote-unquote hip-hop show because I feel like listening to The Block, though, it goes so much deeper than that, eh? Yeah, and that was the whole thing. I just came with this real passion to provide a platform for just all the different wonderful ways in which Black music has grown from its seeds to how it exists today as this major force in mainstream culture around the world. And I wanted to also not really subscribe to genre culture anymore because I think we're definitely moving past that. Um, definitely moving past these boxes that are required for record companies and labels to place their artists, to be able to market them, to be able to sell them. As we get further and further away from that model and, you know, you just sit back in watch and see the way people consume music through streaming you know nobody is really locked in super mm -hmm. hard into one genre so i felt that you know having a show that was just one genre would be too limiting and why limit yourself in a world that has so much music especially music of black origin that is so diverse and beautiful and wonderful 
How does it feel to get this chance each day, each weekday, to elevate these Black <laughs> artists right around the country? Oh, gosh, I'm a perfectionist, so every day is another day to make it better. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I I follow the same thing with myself. I get it. Yeah, so every day is another day to, you know, really just make this the most beautiful platform possible. And uh, and I'm, I'm on a journey. You know, this is definitely not the final project. We are on a journey with the team and, and the way we work together to really create something that lives up to the responsibility, really, that has been placed in our hands to uh, serve the community and serve um, not only the Black community, but the community of people who love this music. It's great to hear some Edmonton artists make appearances too. Uh, Dorje, the singing shaman, K Riz, uh, also yeah. some that now live in Toronto, Noella Charles, Cadence Weapon. Uh, what's it? Yeah. What's it like to to think back on your Alberta days, especially your early days in radio, and how that connects to where you're at now? I mean, <laughs> since I had a chance to, you know, start, you know, finding a place within the music community. I mean, I started out you know, doing a lot of music myself, singing and rapping. I was in a band. um, And then I ended up getting a, you know, a job offer in Calgary. And then I up and peaced out from Edmonton. And, you know, I I still maintained, you know, a lot of of that creative outlet in addition to, you know, my day job of being on the radio and sometimes my night job of hosting club nights and things like that. But I mean, I have to say from the moment I was able to kind of step out on my own and spread my wings as an autonomous young human person, probably around the age of 15, You know, I've just been on this trajectory um, that, you know, not only provided me with, you know, an immersion in the art of making music, but also in in the art of presenting music, curating music, programming music, talking about music. So, you know, I just it's funny because I feel <laughs> like sometimes you get into your own world, you think like everybody's like you and everybody's as this as passionate as music <laughs> about music as you are. But, you know, I really when I look back on it, it's just been this this journey um, to to really bring me to where I am today. The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton, and our team is Claire Bonnyman, James Evans, Christina Silva. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm your host, Tara McCarthy. Thanks for listening. And actually, this is my last show. I'll be stepping away as host of the podcast, but there are many more episodes to come because, as I always say, there's so much more to know. So you can still get into the loop with us every Friday. Leave us a rating or review. Send some feedback. We have an email, theloop at cbc.ca. You can also use the hashtag TheLoopCBC on social media. Subscribe or download the show on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.